0: All right, wow, what a great introduction. You did great, and I can't read without my glasses either. So I can fully appreciate that. What a great joy it is to be with you guys here at Eastside. I have never been here before, but I have been familiar with your church through my friendship with your pastor, Dave, and uh, my wife, Sandy, who is here with me. The both of us met Dave and Susan several years ago at a Solomon Foundation event in Charlotte, North Carolina. And ever since then, I've gotten to know Dave. He's been to my church. We've had meals together and I've grown in my uh, admiration and appreciation for him as time has gone by. And I'll tell you, the one thing that I admire about Dave the most, and this comes from somebody who's been a preacher for a long, long time, is I admire the way he loves this church. Can somebody say amen to that? Because I know he does. I know he loves this church deeply, and he's, he serves you so well. And I am so grateful and, and honored to be able to spend some time with you this weekend. Uh, in the scriptures, a couple of years ago, I shared a message series at my church called spiritual rhythms. And as you might imagine, that message series focused on spiritual disciplines. And if I were going to define uh, if I were going to define rather spiritual disciplines, I would simply say that they are spiritual practices that lead to spiritual transformation. In fact, let's put that up on the screen. And uh, I want everyone to say that with me. Let me hear your voice say it loud. Here we go. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual practices that lead to spiritual transformation. I think that's a great definition of spiritual disciplines. There are a lot of different opinions among believers about how many spiritual disciplines there actually are. Uh, and so I put together, when I put this message series together for my church family back in Greenwood, I, I put together a little five-point filter that we could use to try to Discover whether or not something was a genuine spiritual discipline, and I'll just go through them with you real quickly. Number one, we need to understand that spiritual disciplines are both personal and corporate. And so, in other words, that's pretty self-explanatory. We practice spiritual disciplines in our personal spiritual lives, but spiritual disciplines are something that we can practice together. For example, we pray in our personal lives, but when we come together, we pray together as a body. So spiritual disciplines are both personal and corporate. The second thing I said was spiritual disciplines are activities, not attitudes. And this is important because we can get confused about this sometimes. Spiritual disciplines are activities, not attitudes. Or in other words, spiritual disciplines are not just our thoughts or our feelings. Spiritual disciplines happen when we are doing something, when we are praying, when we are meditating on the Word of God, when we are involved in a fast or something like that. The third thing I wrote down is that spiritual disciplines are modeled in the Bible, and if you're a student of the Bible, you know that nobody did that in the Bible better than Jesus. He modeled spiritual disciplines for us in a variety of different ways. Number four, spiritual disciplines are encouraged in the Bible in a lot of different ways and finally number five and this is a really important one we need to understand that spiritual disciplines are a means not an end what do i mean by that well i mean that practicing spiritual disciplines don't make you spiritually mature spiritual maturity is the result of practicing spiritual disciplines it might sound like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of twisting things, but think about that with me for a minute. It's not the fact that, just the fact that you set aside time every day, for example, to pray that makes you spiritually mature. If you're just doing that out of an obligation, if your heart's not in it, practicing spiritual disciplines don't make you spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is what happens when you practice spiritual disciplines from an open, honest, genuine heart that really is in pursuit of a deeper relationship with God. Now, I've been a pastor for a long, long time. I know that most people are familiar with the basic disciplines that we talk about when we talk about spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading the Bible and meditating and fasting. And so, in this spiritual rhythm series that I did at my church, I wanted to talk about some spiritual disciplines that we might not talk about very often, that don't get a lot of time and attention. And so, one of them I talked about was the spiritual discipline of confession, and that's what I want to spend some time talking with you about from a biblical perspective tonight. Because confession is so important when it comes to our spiritual lives, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a single verse of Scripture. It's going to be 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. You can turn there in your Bible if you want, or uh, I'm sure we're going to put it up on the screen here in just a moment. And then after I read this single verse of Scripture, I want to just ask you to bow with me, and we're going to pray and ask God's blessing on the things that we're going to talk about, okay? So here it is, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. John writes and says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us, from all unrighteousness. What a great verse of Scripture. What a great promise. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so deeply, and we're so grateful for your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives. And we're so grateful that you are a God who helps us to grow, who instructs us and guides us and challenges us in ways that help us grow deeper in our relationship with you. And tonight, as we talk about the spiritual discipline of confession, as we talk about the power of confession, I pray that your spirit would really speak to our hearts because I'm certain that there will be people here this weekend, tonight and on Sunday morning, who are carrying around a burden that they don't need to carry around any longer. And it's a burden that affects their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. And so guide and direct us, convict us by your spirit Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth in the Gospel of John. We pray the Holy Spirit would speak truth to our hearts tonight. And we ask that in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said amen. Amen. A few months ago, uh, our granddaughter, Grace, who is 12 now, spent the night with Sandy and me. And Sandy and me love it. Our Our grandkids, we have three of them, they literally live a mile from our house. And so they can ride a bike over, walk over, or a scooter over, or whatever. And we love it when our grandkids are in the house. If you're a grandparent, anytime they're in their house, you just love that. She spent the night, and on this particular evening, Sandy turned the television on to Disney Plus, and she found the old movie, Pollyanna. Anybody have seen the old movie, Pollyanna? Or you know the story of Pollyanna, maybe. Uh, Pollyanna is a, a movie that tells the story of a 12-year-old orphan girl who was the daughter of missionaries and they were tragically killed and she's sent to live with her wealthy but pretty strict aunt in a small town in Vermont. And here's the thing about Pollyanna, she's very cheerful, she's very talkative and she's very optimistic about everything. And she's a little girl who chooses to focus all of her attention on the good things in life and look for good things to be happy about. It seems that before her father died, the two of them had actually talked about this and they created a game that they did together called the glad game where they would just look for something good in everything that was in front of them. And at one point in the movie, one scene, Pollyanna is there. She's outside with uh, the local pastor, the local preacher. His name was the Reverend Ford in the movie. And he is your basic hellfire and brimstone preacher. Anybody ever heard a preacher like that? He's that preacher who knows a whole lot more about what he's against than what he's for. Anybody ever known anything like that? And so she's there and she's just chat, chat, chatting away while he's practicing a sermon. And so she asks him, said, would you like to practice your sermon on me? And she said, that's something my father used to do. And he said, sure, sure, sure. But he's not really paying much attention to her. And he just goes on. And then at one point she asks him this question. She says, Reverend Ford, do you like being a minister? And she said, I asked my father that question once. And he said he was glad he was a minister, but it sometimes made him sad because he couldn't seem to always get through to his congregation. Up to that point, Reverend Ford wasn't really paying much attention to what Pollyanna was saying, but that caused attention. So he said, I suppose every minister of God faces the same problem. And then he said, tell me, did your father ever solve the problem? Pollyanna tells him her father read something one day that helped him a lot. It was a quote from Abraham Lincoln, and the quote said this, When you look for the bad in mankind expecting to find it, you surely will. When you look for the bad in mankind expecting to find it, you surely will. And she said that quote caused her father to change his attitude and start looking for the good in people. And she said that's when my father and I came up with uh, this planned to search the Bible to find all the happy texts and to find all the glad passages. You know, ones like, shout for joy and rejoice in the Lord always. She continued on and said, Reverend Ford, did you know that there are 800 happy texts or glad passages in the Bible? And she said, my father used to say, if God went to all the trouble of telling us to be glad and rejoice 800 times, he must have wanted us to do it. And that conversation, if you know the movie, had a powerful effect on the Reverend Ford. And he actually changed the way that he preached. And so, at the end of the movie, he was a completely different preacher. But here's why I tell you that story. While I genuinely love and appreciate the message that comes in glad passages or happy texts in the Bible, I do, I really do, I also feel compelled to say that no one can experience the real depth of joy that God offers us until they deal with the reality of their sin. Because first of all, sin separates us from God, and second, sin has the power to destroy our lives. And while I believe there are glad passages and happy texts that deal with the reality of sin, sin is not something that most people want to talk about today. In A man named Cornelius Plantica's book that he wrote called Not the Way We're Supposed to Be, he writes these words. The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated it, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it, but that's not the way it is today. I read an interesting article in Relevant Magazine when I was writing this message uh, several months ago, and the article said, why doesn't anybody talk about sin? The author was a a man who was a biblical studies professor uh, at North Park University in Chicago, and he talks about Uh, the fact that every semester he teaches a class that's simply called Jesus of Nazareth. And he says at the end of each class, every class, so if it's a a two-day-a-week or a a three-day-a-week class, at the end of every single class, he has his students recite the Lord's Prayer together. And he said he does it for two basic reasons. Number one, he does it because he believes that the Lord's Prayer sums up pretty much the entirety of Jesus' teaching. And second, he said he does it because the Lord's Prayer contains a reference to sin, now, you can find it in Matthew's gospel, and you can find it in the gospel of Luke. And if you read it in Matthew's gospel, then it doesn't usually, most translations don't use the literal word, word sin. They'll say transgressions or transfer, or trespasses. Forgive us our transgressions or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who transgress or trespass. Or trespass against us. But he said he always uses Matthew's version because it's a little bit longer, but he asks his students to import the word sin from Luke's version into Matthew's version, and so that's the way they recite it at the end of every single class period. He says, because I think these kids need to hear the word sin over and over again. And then he shared about a time when a student told him that she was offended, that he imported the word sin into the Lord's Prayer because the word sin was so negative and so harmful. And the professor urged her to take a good long look at the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11, verses one through four, and think about what she was saying, And because, and this is a direct quote, saying that each of us sins isn't harmful, it's true, and not only that, note this, it tells the story of who we are. Let's talk about what that means for a minute. Whenever I share the gospel with somebody, uh, something that I've been doing for a long time, I began my first full-time ministry back in 1980. And so I've been doing it for 43 years. And whenever I share the gospel with somebody, I have always used the same simple presentation. I talk to them about three things. I said, there are three things that you need to know and understand. And I describe them like this. Separation, substitution, salvation. Real easy to remember. I say, we got to talk about three things. Separation, substitution, and salvation. And separation is the truth that all of us, no matter how different we may be in every other way in this life, we have one thing in common and that's that none of us are perfect, right? That we're all sinners, that's what we all have in common. I mean, Paul literally, you know this, comes right out and says in Romans chapter 3, and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I would often use an illustration when I talk to somebody about this to try to help uh, drive it home to them. them. And maybe you've seen this before, but I say, let's just imagine for a moment that my hand is not really my hand, it represents my life and my Bible is not really a Bible, it's a record book of every single sin I've ever committed in my life. From the time I was old enough to be held accountable for my actions, every single sin I've ever committed is written in the pages of this Bible. Uh, I'm not sure my Bible would be thick enough But let's just imagine that for a moment. I say, if you take my Bible, which is a record book of my sin, you place it on top of my life, you don't even see me anymore. All you see is the reality of my sin. I'm completely covered up, surrounded by, and defined by the reality of my sin. And that's something that I will talk to people about uh, as I talk to them about the reality of separation. And so many times, friends, so many times over the years, somebody has stopped me right at that point to tell me what a good person they are or to describe to me, sometimes in detail, the many good things that they have done in their life. But here's the deal: While I don't doubt their truthfulness and I don't doubt their sincerity, that they believe that's really true about them their lives, that doesn't mean that they're not, they're not a sinner, right? I mean, we, don't you try to be a good person? I try to be a good person. If I came to your neighborhood sometime, you live in the neighborhood, I would never park behind your driveway, because that's a pet peeve that I have. I think bad people park behind other people's driveways. If we were flying on the same airplane together and I had the seat behind you and I needed to get up, I would never put my hand on the back of your seat and use it at, to, as, a, as a help to boost me up and you, you'd all be sudden be jolted like that. If, you were, if we were at a red light and you were behind me in my car, you would never have to honk your horn at me because as soon as that light turns green, I'm gone. Doesn't that just irritate you? You're in the back of of a line and you're just, my wife, I I said, there's a big gap, there's another gap. Two cars could have gone in that gap. (laughs) In fact, the next time you're at a red light, I want you to think, I wish that preacher from Greenwood was in front of me right now. (laughs) Now I'll stop right there and I I could go on to tell you all kinds of other good things that I think that I do in my life and you could make your own list, but no matter what our list was like, that wouldn't mean that we're not still sinners, right? because none of us are perfect. And we're gonna deal with the reality of temptation and sin in our lives on some level, probably every day of our lives for the rest of our lives, as long as we live encased in this sinful fallen flesh, living in this broken world, right? And so, we have to understand the reality of that. And confession, the spiritual discipline of confession, Passion is something that can really help us in our spiritual lives. You're probably familiar with people who say that when I pray, I use the acrost. I take the word Acts and use it as an acrostic to guide my prayers, and so. For the letter A, I begin my prayers with adoration. I tell God how much I love him and I praise him for his greatness. And then you go to the letter C, which is confession. And so there's an opportunity for the confession of sin, then T, and you pray prayers of thanksgiving. And S stands for supplication. And that's when you get to ask God for all the things that you need, all the desires and all the the wants in your life, all the prayer requests and concerns that you have in your life. We can't miss that letter C. We can't miss that, that letter C in that word confession because... And you should write this down somewhere, maybe in your Bible. Confession is a spiritual discipline that leads to spiritual transformation. And we need to acknowledge that as long as we live in this world. I've been a Christian for over 55 years. I've been a pastor for 43 years. And every day of my life, I seem to battle temptation and sin, at least on some level. And I think any honest Christian would say the same thing but it's the spiritual discipline of confession that can help us with this battle because spiritual disciplines are spiritual practices that lead to spiritual transformation. In a book called uh, The Life You've Always Wanted, a man named John Ortberg has a chapter called Life Beyond Regret. And the tagline for the chapter is the power of confession. Think about this, life beyond regret, the power of confession. And so in the chapter, he addresses one of the most common questions people ask when it comes to confession. And the question is, and you could probably even come up with it on your own, if I'm a Christian and God has already forgiven me, why should I have to confess? And here's his answer. He writes and says, confession is not primarily something God has to do because he needs it. God is not clutching tightly to his mercy as if we have to pry it from his fingers like a child's last cookie. We need to confess, note this, in order to heal and be changed. We need to confess our sin in order to heal and be changed. And then he goes on to say, when we practice confession well, two things happen. The first is that we're liberated from guilt. The second is that we will be a little less likely to sin in the same way in the future if we had not confessed. And he says, sin will look and feel less attractive. And I don't know how that strikes you, friends, but in all honesty, I will just tell you, I hate struggling with sin. I hate struggling with temptation. I hate feeling the regret for Things that I have said or thought or done, or good things that I failed to do. And I'd love to get a better handle on how I can experience transformation and change when it comes to those things. And so we confess our sins to heal and be changed, but there's another reason why we confess our sins. While We receive what we might call judicial forgiveness when we became a Christian, when we surrendered our lives in faith and trust to to Jesus, when we surrendered to him as Lord of our life. Well, when that happened, we received what we might call judicial forgiveness, or maybe some people might call it positional forgiveness. And I, I say positional forgiveness because before you became a Christian, when God looked at you, he saw the reality of your sin. But after you put your faith and trust in Christ, he looks at you and he sees the reality of the righteousness of Christ, right? He sees you covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so while we could say that our salvation brought us a a judicial or a positional forgiveness, what we need to do is make sure that our daily relationship with God, our practical relationship with God is not hindered by some ongoing sin. Think about it just from the perspective of an earthly relationship that happens between a father and his children. Sandy and I have two children. Our son is 38, our daughter is 35. And there's nothing they could ever do that could cause me to stop loving them. I think any, any loving father would say the same thing about his children. There's nothing they could ever do that would ever stop me to, or, or cause me to stop loving them. But even though I would never stop loving them, and I would never disown them in any way, there can be times when my relationship with them could be disrupted because of their behavior, because of their attitude, or because of some kind of conflict like that. And that disruption is going to be there until things are made right. Well, it can be the same way with our relationship with God. I've had people over the years come to me and say, Pastor, I, just, I don't know what it is. I'm just, my, I just, I don't feel close to God anymore. I, I feel like there's a distance. It's not, it's not as easy for me to talk to God. It's not as easy for me to worship. And I, I just feel like there's a disruption in a relationship. And almost every time when we start to dig down and try to unpack that, what is it? There's some, there's some unconfessed, some hidden sin That's why David wrote in Psalm 66 and verse 18, and said, if I had cherished sin in my heart, he says, I know God, you would not have heard me. And you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and you see the anguish that David experienced in his life when he was trying to cover up his sin with Bathsheba, his sin of adultery, and you see the reality of this firsthand. It's the confession of sin that also keeps our personal relationship with God right. So here's the here's the most important question. How, how do we practice the spiritual discipline of confession? We know how to pray, we we know how to meditate, we know how to read our bible and we know how to fast, just don't eat, right? But Fasting doesn't have to just be eating. Fasting is removing one thing out of your life to make room for God in your life or more room for God in your life. That's a simple definition that I use. But how do we practice the spiritual discipline of confession? I got three things to share with you, and I'll do this quickly, I promise. Number one, at the top of the list, we ask God for help. We ask him for help. I love these words from Psalm 139. We'll put them up on the screen. Verses 22 and 23. Uh, The psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Don't you think that's a pretty bold prayer to ask? I mean, I don't ask people questions when I don't want to know the answers, do you? And so we ask God for help. And if we ask God for his help, he's going to give us his help. There's two dangers that can be associated with the confession of sin. The first one is really obvious. There's the danger of ignoring our sin and just not confessing. It's a very real thing. I've talked to a lot of people over the years who they just don't see their sin. And the second is the danger of self-condemnation because we can be so hard on ourselves, so hard on ourselves and so overwhelmed with our guilt that we almost can't even bear to talk to God about it. We need to avoid both of those things and we can avoid both of those dangers by simply Practicing the discipline, the spiritual discipline of confession, and laying our heart out wide open to God. Here's the second thing. First, we ask for God's help. The second one is this we choose complete honesty. And this is a non negotiable. We choose complete honesty. I'm gonna put the words of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 back up on the screen. Uh, John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This word confess here is a really interesting word. In the original language of the New Testament, you may already know this, it's the Greek word homologeo, and literally translated, it means to say the same thing or to agree with, to concede, not to deny. That's what this word means. To say the same thing a good way to think about it on a practical level, it would be to agree with God about the reality of what we're talking about. And so you could literally read that verse like this. You could, you could say, um, if we say the same thing as God says about our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so that, what that says to me is that, that, and here's a great way to think about confession. Confession is spoken repentance. We know what repentance is. When I was a little boy growing up in Sunday school, I was taught that repentance is, if I'm walking down the road this way, i am stop, and I turn around, and I walk the other way. Confession is spoken repentance. It's saying out loud what God already knows, and we're completely honest about it. One of the most familiar stories that Jesus ever told in the in the Gospels is the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, right? Luke chapter 15 it begins in verse 11 goes to verse 24 and you remember the story after the prodigal son God's inheritance from his father way before he, he deserved it. He went off into a, another country, and he just blew it all on wild living, riotous living, and complete debauchery until he had nothing, and he didn't even have a place to stay. He had no food to eat, and he decided one day, I'll just go home and ask my father if I can be one of the servants in the household. At least then I will have a place to stay and food to eat. But do you remember what he did as he was walking home, as he was making his way home? Do you remember what he did? He was talking to himself. What was he saying? He was saying exactly what he would say to his father, right? In fact, Luke chapter 15 and verse 18, these are the words that he was rehearsing as he walked on 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 the road to go home. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And do you know what that is? That's not just saying, I'm sorry. That's not just going home and say, Hey, I apologize. It's going home and confessing in a way that demonstrates the honest recognition of sin and the need to call it what it is. And that's what happens when we see sin through God's eyes. And so we have to have complete honesty. It's easy to rationalize our sin. It's easy to defend our sin. We all have at least some level of capacity when it comes to self-deception, but confession happens only when you choose complete honesty. And I, don't, I, I will tell you, as a pastor, I've known people who have been really honest about their life, except they hang on to this one thing. There's one thing that they won't talk about, one thing that's too painful, too personal, too shameful to talk about even though God already knows. And do you think think God needs to hear that confession or do you think you need to speak those words of confession? It's both. But on the most practical level, you need to speak those words of confession. You've got to get out from under that rock. You've got to let yourself up off the mat. But you can only do that when you're completely honest. Here's the third thing. We accept God's grace. That's how we practice the spiritual discipline of confession. We accept God's grace which means we accept God's forgiveness. Remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We accept God's grace. That's a promise from God, and God keeps his promises. I've known a lot of Christians, and maybe this describes you today, who for whatever reason sometimes has a hard time accepting the grace of God because we've convinced ourselves that we've gone too far. We've done something that is too bad. We've crossed a line somehow, and that God may be willing to forgive us for every other thing in our life, but this one thing is just too bad. But that's not how it works. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all, everyone say all, all impurity and unrighteousness. We need to remember that. You can trust in the forgiveness of God. I love these words in Lamentations chapter three. I'm sure you do as well, verses 22 and 23 because the book of Lamentations is a horrible book. I mean, think about the title. It's a book about lament. It was a book about the lament of the the spiritual failure that was over and over again by the nation of Israel. And so, but but right there here in this third chapter, the prophet he focuses in on the goodness of God. And I love what he says here. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. And then he says, They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That word new is a powerful word. In the original language of the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word Hadesh. And the significance of that is that it means brand new, okay? Brand new. New in the sense of never, something never happened before. And so you think about this verse, and it's, it's, it's got such an incredible promise in it because the verse says that, that God's love and mercy never end, that, that they're more than enough for all of us. He has unlimited love and unlimited mercy for us. But then we're told by use of this word new that God applies that love and mercy in our lives in a new way, a never-been-applied-before way every single day. How could you not trust the promise of forgiveness from a God like that? You don't have to hang on to whatever it is that is weighing you down in your life. If you have a hard time forgiving yourself, which I know many of us do, you just need to remember the steadfast love of the Lord, the truth that His mercy never comes to an end, and that He pours those things into your life. He wants to pour those things into your life in a new way each and every day. I don't know if you've ever saw a movie. It's, it's pretty old now. It's called The Mission. It wasn't a box office hit or a movie that a lot of people would talk about, but it was set in the 1750s. It was a story about a Jesuit priest who is working to build a mission in Argentina so they can convert the local natives, a people group known as the, as the Guarini, to Christianity. And the most famous actor in the movie is Robert De Niro, who plays a character called Mendoza, who is a vile man. He's a slave trader. I mean, every bad thing you can think about, he's involved in. He's just the worst kind of human being that you could think of. Somebody so selfish, so brutal, so wicked that it seems like there's no hope for him. But miraculously, you might even say, at least in the storyline, supernaturally, one day he comes to a place of repentance in his life. Extreme repentance. And as an act of repentance, he's required to carry around a heavy burden that's literally tied to his body. A, 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 a rope literally carry, uh, is tied to his body and on the other end is, um, is a bag of sorts that's just filled with all kinds of heavy weights and he has to drag that weight around with him every single place that he goes uh, because it's an act of penance. And as he begins to do that through the ordeal, he begins to see uh, how bad and how selfish and how wrong everything that his life had been built on up to this point and how much of a burden it, had, it was to him, but not only to him, but how much of a burden it was also to those people that he interacted with in his life. And through the, through the process, he begins to see his own helplessness, which helps him understand his own dependence on the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. But one day in particular, there's a pretty dramatic scene in the movie where one day he is on a desperate climb up a mountain, but he's not alone. There are other people there making this climb together. And at a certain point on the climb of the mountain, he realizes he's not gonna make it because the burden that he's carrying is too heavy. And not only is he not gonna make it, he realizes that he, the burden that he's carrying is not just threatening him, it's threatening the other people that are around him. And so he stops uncertain what to do And there's frustration among the other people. And all of a sudden, one of the natives walks up to him and in a dramatic way pulls a knife out of his belt and takes a step toward him. And he's convinced he's just gonna kill him so that it's all over and done with. But what he does is he slashes the rope and he releases the burden so he doesn't have to carry it anymore. And he's able to make it all the way to the top of the mountain. So as we think about the spiritual discipline of confession, which can lead to spiritual transformation in our lives, what kind of burden are you carrying tonight? What level of guilt or regret are you living with in your life right now today? I mean, in this moment, as thinking about it as personally as possible. What's something that you have failed to do that you can't forget about? What's something that you can't forgive yourself for? I'm telling you, if you're willing to confess that tonight, God will forgive you and it will be gone. Because the promise of Scripture is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if you continue to carry that guilt with you, that regret with you, that failure with you, if you continue to hide it, if you continue to rationalize it, if you continue to call it something other than what it really is, then you're going to carry it with you for the rest of your life. And it will threaten your life every single step of the way. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can get rid of it tonight. And then you can continue to practice that spiritual discipline of confession every day of your life and know that your life is right with God Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your love and your grace and your mercy. We're so grateful for the, clear, the clarity of your word, the instruction and the teaching of your word. And I'll just echo something I said in the beginning. I pray for your Holy Spirit, who Jesus called the spirit of truth to speak directly to the heart of anyone who is struggling with guilt and regret and failure in their life tonight. Give them the courage to confess it, to agree with you about it, to say the same thing, to say what it is, to call it what you call it so that it can be forgiven and give all of us, every one of us who want to just know you and experience your goodness like we sang about earlier on a deeper level every day of our lives to be willing to practice the spiritual discipline of confession so that we can be right with you With every step. We love you and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.